Defence Dialogue, a podcast discussing contemporary challenges in the area of European security and defence. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Nicholas Novaki. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Martin Center's Defense Dialogue podcast series. My name is Dr. Nicholas Novaki. Uh, very happy to have you join us again for the first episode of 2023. And I'm also extremely happy because today we have not just one, but two guests uh, joining me for this episode. We have uh, Garvin Walsh, our visiting fellow. Uh, welcome, Garvin. And also we have a um, very good friend, uh, Julian. Bonici uh, from um, the communications team joining us for the first time. So thanks uh, for having me too. Very happy to have both of you gentlemen join. And and, um, it's an interesting time. It's a very interesting time we're living because uh, I'm sure like perhaps like you noticed the bulletin of the atomic scientists um, turned the symbolic doomsday clock uh, yesterday to 90 minutes to midnight, which is the closest it has ever been um, to midnight and midnight symbolizes uh, the, the, the closeness of existential disaster that the Earth uh, might be facing. Uh, it's, some, it's something that uh, the bulletin of the atomic scientists have been doing since the Cold War, and during the Cold War it was never closer to two minutes to midnight. Um, so these are indeed uh, quite troubling times, and according to the bulletin, like one of the main reasons like why it was turned this close to midnight was the ongoing war in Ukraine, which in this town as well continues to be the main uh, topic of discussion. Uh, we had yesterday a meeting of uh, EU Foreign Affairs Ministers in the Foreign Affairs Council, and the ministers discussed the um, forthcoming um, EU-Ukraine summit, in, uh, which will take place in Kiev in the beginning of February, and also another uh, forthcoming uh, assistance package to Ukraine via the European Peace Facility, the always ironically named European Peace Facility, uh, which has provided uh, lethal arms and other, like through which uh, the EU is financing the supply of lethal arms and other equipment to Ukraine. And I think with this new package, it'll, it'll, uh, the total level of that assistance will reach, uh, go beyond uh, 3 billion, so quite significant. But even more important than that, uh, the main topic uh, that has been on the news for the past couple of weeks has been the issue of uh, supply main battle tanks to Ukraine, and especially German Leopard 2s. Um, there's been quite a lot of international pressure that has been put on Germany over the last couple of weeks. Berlin has been quite cautious, not really wanting to supply main battle tanks uh, without uh, getting other countries on board. Um, th- there's been a special emphasis on getting Leopard 2s to Ukraine because, um, well, firstly, it would help Ukraine uh, fight back against Russia. Um, it would make it easier for them to deoccupy some of the territories. Uh, but secondly, there's a fairly large pool of Leopard 2s uh, that are also used by other European countries. So potentially Ukraine could uh, draw from a fairly large pool. But finally, um, in the news today, uh, at the time of recording, and we are recording this episode on Wednesday, the 25th of January, there have been reports um, that um, in the afternoon of today, Chancellor Olaf Scholz will announce that indeed uh, Germany will provide about a company of Leopard 2s uh, to Ukraine, so that'll be about 14 tanks. And then in addition, the US will be providing some M1 Abrams uh, tanks 
to give a little bit of cushion, uh, international support to Germany. And, and then, of course, other countries would most likely provide some tanks as well. So, indeed, important decision, um, important um, uh, sign of support for Ukraine. And, and uh, we have to see it kind of where, where this goes from here. So, it, it, very interesting to hear your opinions as well, gentlemen, and where, where the support uh, might go from here and what will happen next. So, there's an interesting thing with these tanks because it's like the... There's a video of Arafat and Ehud Barak saying as they're going into Camp David, after you, after you. And in the end, Bill Clinton comes and shoves them through the door. It's been a bit like that where Germany and Poland and everyone else have been saying, no, no, you, you supply these first and you need the Americans to find and say, come on, just all of you go in at once. Um, we've seen that uh, Spain's also announced that it's going to send some um, together with. So you've got Spain, Poland, I think Finland has uh, promised us to sort of token force, but because obviously it still needs many of its um, tanks for defense against Russia, but I think could make a big difference on the, on, on the logistics and maintenance because uh, they have a lot of experience with them. It's important for Ukraine not to have to operate five or six different types of tanks. Yeah, no, they'll find, they'll find ways of doing it, but it's, but it's a real pain. So although there are small numbers of Challenger 2s from the UK, there'll be small numbers of uh, Leclerc's from France. Um, these really are there for diplomatic cover for Germany rather than to have the main force. Um, there are about a thousand um, tanks in European armies uh, that are Leopard 1s or Leopard 2s. Uh, not all of them are entirely usable because we've got Finland stocks. We've got the old German stocks that need a lot of maintenance. Uh, the manufacturer said it would take them about a year to get those back into working order. Now, maybe they're over-promising and under-delivering as manufacturers often do, but still there's a lot of work to be done there. I don't think Greece and Turkey are going to be giving up their Leopard tanks either, though it would be nice if they could be persuaded to agree to send an equal number of tanks so they were so the balance was maintained between the two, those two NATO allies. But, you know, I think it's, it's important because if Ukraine can manage to get 300 or 400 tanks together for um, the spring, uh, they stand a good chance of being able to punch some holes in the defensive mm. lines that Russia has been building up and punching them directly because so far their main tactic has been this kind of really advanced industrialized guerrilla war where they've been aiming for um, logistical depots, supply dumps, uh, railheads, all the things that support the Russian war machine. And because Russia hasn't been able to protect them, um, they've often had to fall back. But sometimes you do need direct frontal assaults. The war has sort of, you know, frozen into a bit of a World War One type trench stalemate with the Russians digging in on the um, east bank of the Dnipro mm. and the Ukrainians, you know, stru struggling at the moment to get over or waiting at the moment to get over. And while they can interfere with supplies to a certain extent, then at some point you need heavy combined arms maneuver to be able to punch through defenses. That's actually what happened yeah. exactly in World War One itself yeah. when tanks were invented and then were able to push, push through the um, defensive lines. Um, now, these days, tanks also are usually supported by aircraft. That's a separate discussion. Maybe we'll come on to it later in, later in the program. But Ukraine isn't going to have offensive air capacity by this spring offensive. That would certainly take longer to set up, even if we had um, diplomatic support for it, which isn't quite there. Um, yeah, no, I'm really interesting. No, but my sort of whole perspective on this at the moment is really how Russia might respond to it, right? You know, I think the, the Russian ambassador to the US already sort of described it as a a blatant provocation, or as you said, this is sort of steamrolling um, other European countries providing tanks. Uh, where do you two sort of see 
see this going maybe you know that's my question i think the question on everyone's lips well i think kind of we have to first of all like remember that this is something that the russians have, have been kind of saying like since the very beginning i mean and like when we talked uh, even like more modest support and they've been kind of warning constantly about the 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 escalatory potential of whenever like uh, ukraine's western partners in the european union uh, the United States and others are, are providing, but I mean, I think we have to be absolutely careful about the uh, clear about the fact that the entire reason, like, why there is the war, is because I mean, Russia launched an unprovoked like attack in, in in February of last year, and like, if it, anybody is escalating, it's Russia, and the the European Union, Ukraine, uh, the West more broadly are simply trying to ensure that Ukraine continues to exist as a, as an independent like sovereign country, and that Russia is uh, unable to annex um, parts of Ukraine as it as it as it did in 2014 when it annexed Crimea but these are scare tactics I mean they are meant to uh, scare uh, Ukraine's western backers they are meant to scare the population and the electorate of like European countries uh, but so far it hasn't hasn't really worked and even in Germany I mean where there is uh, significant hesitation among uh, the, uh, the 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 ruling um, SPD and also like within the German electorate, like I think still about half, 50% of the population is quite strongly in favor of uh, uh, delivering these tanks to Ukraine, which is very, very significant considering that Germany's security and defense culture is very, has traditionally been quite, quite pacifist. So, uh, and, and if we think that today we're at the moment in which the German government is thinking of sending or will announce that it will send uh, Leopard 2 tanks to uh, Ukraine, it's absolutely incredible. And and hopefully uh, these tanks will make a real real difference. And I, and and, and uh, it's an impressive impressive piece of machinery. Uh, the the armor is heavier than like some of the armored personal carriers that like Ukraine has already received. And those armored personal carriers, I mean, could be wounded, uh, destroyed with a, with a single um, soldier held um, anti tank. Um, anti-tank missile system like these will be a bit more difficult to damage like they will require much heavier weaponry so in that sense as well like i mean it will give a ukraine i think uh, a much deserved uh, edge like when pushing against the russian defensive lines how do you i mean if you you've sort of you've sort of seen these up up close nicholas and you've um i mean do you know how how they cope with um, artillery attack because that's mostly what russia's sending sending over it's, the russian army is principally an artillery army and um, can they make it through barrages, you know, at least for some time? And that's a good question. I mean, that um, I, I remember uh, when 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 I did my military service in in Finland, and and we saw some of uh, the Leopard 2s in action. That um, they they can withstand a much much heavier heavier uh, anti tank uh, missile than than standard armored personal carriers because the, the the protection and the armor is heavier. But how would they withstand? An artillery like barrage, artillery fire, uh, I do not, I, I do not know. But I would think that probably depends on the um, concentration of the artillery fire and, and the type of artillery munition uh, they're used. Uh, I think they will standard artillery shrapnel. They probably withstand a lot better than than, than uh, armored personnel carriers that have been uh, provided. But but yeah. It's something that we should actually check, see like uh, what what uh, what is said, because it's artillery that Ukraine was able to use to destroy a lot of the Russian advance. And, yeah, and now these are you know more primitive tanks. They have these terribly um, self-destructive autoloaders, mm. uh, which means that they store a lot of um, ammunition right behind the turret. So it means they can tank and fire more quickly, but it also means if you 
if you destroy the autoloader, the whole tank blows up and it sort of pops its top. Yeah. You see, you see in the sort of um, jack of the box kind of effect yeah. of um, these the turrets just being blown off and separated from from, yeah. from from the whole tank. And that was one of the things that really um, hit the Russian advance quite badly. But it also need to go a bit further into things like the maintenance and recovery fleet for the tanks. You know, if the Ukrainians can have all the other subsidiary equipment that helps them keep the tanks in the field longer, keeps fueling them, keep allows them to pull back out of the fight and repair it, then the Leopard 2s can go much further. We know the mm. Russians have pretty poor logistics, pretty poor, poor rep, repair crews. So it may be that, you know, 300 Ukrainian maintained tanks might be worth or yeah. 500 Russian maintained tanks. Exactly. And, and it'll be interesting to see how they will cope with the maintenance side of things, because something that has been like mentioned quite a lot in the discussions on the Le- Leopard 2, but then also especially relating to the other tanks uh, like the M- M1 Abrams, Abrams uh, is, 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 is the challenge of uh, fueling, uh, maintaining and keeping them up in service. And, and this will, requ- of course, require additional efforts from the Ukrainians. Uh, perhaps it will also require additional efforts from the Europeans. Um, there was, at the end of last year, uh, one of uh, the, um, I think, the, one of the final uh, European Peace Facility assistance packages that were agreed, like also included um, funding for maintaining existing equipment that have already been transferred to Ukraine. So perhaps there needs to be an, uh, an increase uh, in, in that amount as well, like in f- future subsequent packages. I mean, if we are uh, to expect and hope that Ukraine is able to maintain these uh, these equipment. So, yeah, I mean, just delivering them is one thing. Uh, keeping them up and running uh, will be a different thing. And the, and the a- a- Abrams are interesting in that respect because they use aviation fuel. They're an entire, which would need Ukraine to con- conduct an entirely different supply chain for that. However, the fact they use aviation fuel is in itself interesting, because if if there are uh, systems to transport aviation fuel around Ukraine, <laughs> well, there are certain other things that might be able to yeah. use aviation <laughs> aviation fuel. The clue is in the name. So is, you know, could this be the way of starting to see how um, Ukraine can develop a bit more air capacity? They've, they've so far been heroic in their um, use of Soviet era aircraft, yeah. keeping their airface, airspace open in the way that uh, nobody expected them to do. Everyone thought they'd lose air. You know, Russia would get air superiority in about three days. They haven't done that. They only managed air superiority in yeah. places like Mariupol, where they were able to send heavy bombers in because they managed to reduce the Ukrainian defense enough. But in the rest, rest of the country, the Ukrainian Air Force still flies sorties. The Ukrainian Air Force also has a surplus of pilots. Um, they couldn't keep them basically because they couldn't pay them. So they trained lots of pilots. Mm. Pilots went off to fly commercial jets, but obviously they've come back to defend their country yeah. now. So they're but they're running short of airframes. And the interesting thing comes, you know, what airframes could they use? There was the unfortunate episode of accidentally announcing the supply of MiGs from Eastern Europe at the beginning of the war. It would have been better if the Russians just suddenly realized they, oh gosh, we're against more of these than we thought. Yeah. Um, and. Some, something like that seems to have happened in the end with parts of MiGs being transmitted. Now, it may have been broken down into two or three parts, you know, a fuselage and two wings, and then put back together mm. again. It's important that remember that a lot of this military assistance isn't advertised. Yeah. Um, you know, the Nordic countries particularly don't don't supply yeah. detailed figures. France doesn't supply detailed figures. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, considerable assistance going in there. Yeah, the Finns, Finns uh, usually say that they do not want to uh, give the exact figures or the exact type of 
the assistance that is given because could give the Russians an edge in, in, in fighting back and then destroying that assistance. And I guess, yeah, there are many other countries that might follow the same model. But I'm wondering, I mean, after the, the Leopard 2 tanks, I mean, this war, unfortunately, it looks like it, it will continue at least for some time. Like we're approaching the one year mark, which will be uh, on the 24th of uh, February. So what would be the next next step after the Leopards? I mean, you mentioned the MiGs, uh, Garvin. So do you think that we could eventually like revisit the discussion around fighter aircraft, yeah. uh, for I think, example? I, I think we, we, we should revisit that discussion. And I think we should start that discussion with air war doctrine. If you traditionally, the, the Western type of air war doctrine is uh, to establish air superiority very fast. Our armed forces tend to put most of their firepower in the air. And the idea is that you suppress the enemy to air defenses quickly. And once you do that, you then have freedom to choose to attack whichever tar target you like. This is much harder in this situation because you could only do that by um, attacking significant parts of Russian territory. And if there's, while I'm generally skeptical of um, Russia's threats of escalation, um, attacking significant you know, Russian military installations in a sort of thousand kilometer range from the border, which is what you're looking at if you wanted to do suppression of Russian air defense, um, would quite reasonably be construed as a serious attack on, on, on the Russian mm. Russian Federation. Um, so that option is, is difficult. It also needs a tremendous amount, diplomatically, it also needs a tremendous amount of scale to pull off. So we need to start thinking about what, how could Ukraine have uh, an air, air capacity that would allow, allow it to push the Russians back from um, where they're currently firing cruise missiles on Ukrainian cities hmm. without having to have a full attempt, full air superiority over Russia, which is unrealistic. You, you'd want the Ukrainians to be able to deter Russian air, air, the Russian Air Force from being able to launch attacks in, into Ukraine from air launch platforms. You want to deter them from flying their fighters because they're worried about replacing them. But, but you can't realistically expect them to suppress Russian air defenses, you know, across ma ma major parts of European Russia. Mm. Um, it means you need to start looking at aircraft that could um, <clears throat> be, be able to operate in a fairly hostile environment. So you're looking at aircraft that can don't need huge amounts of maintenance. You're looking at aircraft that can take off and land in surprising places. Um, you can, you're looking at aircraft that can um, you know, um, conduct a variety of missions as well. The ideal one probably would have been the Harrier, um, which can literally, which was designed to take off and land from the middle of jungles, from mm, all yeah. kinds of places. Vertically, but, yeah. Vertically, um, but it's it's not really um, in use anymore. The U.S. Marines still have some, but they mostly use use them to repair their their existing fleet. The Brits. Um, discontinued them, I think, probably 10 years ago, maybe. Yeah, longer. I think I remember reading as well that, I mean, it's, it's not really used anymore. I think they, like the main verti verti vertical takeoff uh, fighter that is now used to be, is being introduced incrementally uh, to defense forces in Europe and elsewhere is the F-35. Yeah. But I mean, how, that, that, that'll be a completely different beast to maintain. And I don't think there will be a lot of, lot of uh, enthusiasm to like give F-30, very expensive <laughs> F-35s yeah. to, uh, to Ukraine. But, but, but I think where, um, where there, is a, there, is a mid, there is a middle ground, and that's the um, Swedish Gripen, yeah. which can, it can't quite vertically take off and land, but it can land on very short airstrips. Uh, it's, it's, it can be maintained by relatively small teams. And it was designed because Sweden is actually strategically in the same kind of position as Ukraine. If it, it had to defend, uh, develop its own independent defense doctrine against 
a Russian attack. It knew that there was no cap possibility of Sweden, you know, establishing enough firepower to conduct the suppression of Russian air defenses around Moscow and St. Petersburg. Yeah. So they have to be able to also operate in a, in a um, hostile environment. The difficulty with the Gripens is there aren't that many of them. You know, there's a few hundred. It's enough for Sweden's needs. Quite a few of them in Brazil. But, um, and obviously more could be manufactured. But if Sweden were to supply them to uh, Ukraine, Sweden would then be quite vulnerable itself. And Sweden is, is not in NATO yet. Sweden is also um, in, uh, you know, strategically more vulnerable situation. Mm. So perhaps, I mean, there's, there, is, there is a possibility here where, where the UK could come in. It has quite a few Eurofighters that are available. They haven't, um, there's some talk of them being sold to Turkey, but they have, that hasn't happened yet. And um, so you could imagine if the UK could use its security treaty with um, Sweden to fill in for the Gripens, and the Gripens could then um, be prepared to uh, be introduced into the Ukrainian theater. Yes, this would alarm Russians, but it, you know, this doesn't even need to be announced. You know, this is the kind of thing that can happen. Exactly. You don't have to kind of make a huge, huge fuss out of it. And like the Russians would certainly react the way that, I mean, they've been reacting to every single step like on the way and like make the same remarks as they have. But um, and then they'd probably just withdraw their air force. Probably. <laughs> you, one would assume the, air, the air Russian yeah. air force seems very reluctant to lose aircraft. And Sweden, of course, is. Yeah, the, the challenges are similar, but then Sweden, of course, is protected a little bit by the buffer zone of Finland like, <laughs> between Russia and, 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 and Sweden, like which has served them rather well uh, in, 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 in the past. But Julian, you wanted to jump in. No, just something. to see um, what your, your take would be on the international appetite to take sort of to, um, you know, to help in that kind of support. You know, we've seen sort of a lot of months of sort of soul searching just to supply tanks you know i mean the it's a million dollar or billion dollar question <laughs> quite literally because we're talking about like a very expensive equipment being provided but i think kind of i, I would just say that i'm we were lucky with with uh, how relatively mild the winter has been uh, i think which has maintained uh, willingness in quite a few european countries to uh, continue to supply ukraine uh, we see we can see this from several opinion polls that have come out like in in recent weeks and months uh, the, the the willingness to show solidarity to ukraine is 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 high like pretty much across the board in europe and then this of course this willingness amongst the population like reflects higher up to the uh, to the political decision makers but um how how long will this last i mean that that is impossible to tell at the moment at the moment though I mean, what is good is that the willingness is high, and I think um, the the West uh, more broadly, uh, but Europe in particular, like seems to uh, be thinking that they are not providing assistance to Ukraine simply or purely out of out of, of solidarity and purely out of a sense of uh, benevolence, but it's also because it's uh, it is very much in their interest. It is in their interest to weaken the fighting capacity of, of, of the Russian armed forces. It is in their interest to like tie Russia down in Ukraine and make make a stand in Ukraine, and rather than encourage Putin then to perhaps, if he succeeds in annexing territory in Ukraine, he could try uh, doing the same thing uh, in other countries um, in Europe. So making a clear stand in Ukraine in that uh, that sense is is, is um, standing standing our ground, but. Inflation is still high. Um, 
the, the energy security challenges in Europe haven't quite been um, solved completely yet or in a satisfactory way, even though at the moment, like we're looking at energy prices like going down. But I think it really comes down to, well, two things. Um, how, how much weapon stockpiles are left. Uh, many of the equipment that European countries have had in their stockpiles are uh, getting, um, unfortunately, rather low. The European work, Union is currently working on an instrument to try to replenish some of these stockpiles, uh, which should uh, be accepted as soon as possible. But then secondly, also like the, the support among the population. Because if people are eventually turn unhappy, if they are unable to pay their energy, energy pills, um, we can look into a very quick change also in attitude, unfortunately. I, mean, I, th- I think you can you can distinguish um, two regions of Europe here. On the one hand, you have those countries that are um, close to Russia and have an immediate strategic interest in seeing um, Russia weakened and seeing you know, the Russian military as far away as possible, by which I mean the Nordic states, the Baltic states, Poland, um, also to a certain extent, Romania and Bulgaria. And they are clearly committed to having a um, continue, continued war e- support of a war effort in Russia because they know they need it. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are some other countries a bit further away, but still pretty committed, um, like the UK and the Netherlands, that understand the strategic need for this involvement. And then there's a second level, you know, Germany, France, Italy, where there were a lot of worries about public opinion. And there, what's quite interesting is I think the worries should not be for public opinion, they're for elite opinion. The yeah. Public, the public has turned out to be much uh, more robust and much more resolute in its support for Ukraine than foreign policy elites have thought. Partly, I think they just they just see the barbarity of what Russia is doing and then understand yeah. that this thing simply can't be tolerated and somewhere so close to them. Uh, they see cities being attacked. They see uh, military operations that resemble uh, World War II, let alone even the Bos- Bosnian War. Mm. And every time, you know, new territory is liberated, new war crimes are, are discovered, new massacres are found, Russian tactics almost seem designed to inflame West- Western public opinion. Absolutely. And if you see you see on your you see on your um, new on your screens that, you know, people are shivering in minus 20 degrees without heat, it makes people angry rather than. Yeah, absolutely. And it's particularly since Western governments have managed to you know, prepare their countries with the ironic exception of Hungary, which I'm going to come back a second to deal with this this crisis. And also there's been a mild winter. Mostly they put policies in place to allow people to weather them. German industry was um, complaining a lot at the beginning, but have actually just managed to ma- massively improve the efficiency of their use of energy, yeah. which is excellent because they they now produce stuff more efficiently than they could. They move some production elsewhere. They, um, there were some stories that, oh, we've had to leave our lights off in the factories at, at the weekend. And I think, well, that's good because that improves energy efficiency. It helps the fight against climate yeah. change by reducing the need for fossil fuels. And they've been able to do this while keeping output at least level. Um, this is, you know, this shows the strength and adaptability of, democratic capitalist systems, that they're able to deal with quite a few of these shocks in a pretty adaptable and robust way. Now, I want to come back to Hungary. I was just um, talking to some friends who were visiting yesterday, and they were saying that, you know, their universities are not opening until February, Uh, theaters have closed, Um, lots of, you know, communal spaces in big cities in Hungary are closed just simply because they can't afford the heating. Hmm. Um, They depend on they had depended on certain cheap deals from Russia. Those deals are now now in question, though there are still, though Hungary hasn't carved out from the um, sanctions regimes. Um, 
loss of confidence in uh, Orbán's government has meant the currency's fallen, which has driven inflation even higher, sort of 20%, 40% in food. And so they're almost suffering another lockdown because of um, their own foolish um, geopolitical alignment. Um, so instead of being, being buffered um, by their government, like is happening in most other European countries in Hungary, the um, problem is exacerbated. And they're, you know, it's too early to see how public opinion will, uh, will react. The studies haven't been done, but it's um, looking like it was a terrible blunder yeah. uh, by Orban to present himself as the outlier in the West who could still talk to Putin. Yeah, it is incredible, like uh, how strong the public support has has been um, throughout the board, and in in many ways, I think you're you're absolutely right that the 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 response of many Western countries have been driven more by like a high level of public support, like like among ordinary people, like rather than uh, initial strong support, like among political decision makers, and uh, it has created a pressure to act, a pressure to do something that has. Probably, I think, surprised quite a lot of policymakers, quite a lot of leaders. It was certainly a su- surprise also in Finland and I think in Sweden, um, the extent to which public support like went um, uh, for NATO membership went above 50 percent for the first time ever when the war began. And now it's in um, in, in 60s or uh, in the 70s or 80s. Um, and it was really that the public support that also like drove that discussion. Um, before we before we conclude, I just wanted to ask Julian if you have any final kind of comments or perhaps kind of views from because we've talked about public support quite a lot, um, like from the perspective of Malta, because Malta is an interesting case being a neutral uh, EU member state outside NATO. Uh, do you, is is there a strong public support uh, for these European method uh, European measures in Malta as well? Yes, uh, um, I would think though, you know, I would think so, you know. So I'm one of those people who was quite it's quite a cynic. So I think when the war first broke out and there was this outpouring of public support, uh, part of me in my back of my mind, maybe it's my journalist side, whatever sort of said, you know, people are going to forget about this, sort of like what's happened uh, in Crimea, and then it will flare up again um, in a few years' time. Um, in Malta, the public support has been super strong, I think, um, so far. Um, unfortunately, what I would say is sometimes when it's a, a smaller nation, maybe on the periphery of, of the EU, not not so close, the the issues like inflation um, and sanctions because of it sort of get get a lot more criticism. I think uh, even Malta's prime minister and Malta's finance minister have spoken out against it, where I think there's still a bit of um, struggle is necessarily the EU or maybe bigger bodies sort of communicating why why sanctions are effective. Mm. You know, um, Martin Center actually had a really interesting report on, on the matter, so go, go read it out. But I think there could be more done um, to maybe explain to people, you know, what's being done and, and why it's working and how it's yeah. working. Yeah, uh, no, you're absolutely right. Um, but yeah, so we'll we'll have um, a lot has been done, uh, a lot is happening at at the moment, and a lot more will probably be done uh, in in the coming weeks and months. Hopefully, um, Ukraine will continue to have the capacity to to fight back, to deoccupy some of the areas, and we will certainly uh, continue to follow uh, what is happening uh, at at the Martin Center, and we will continue to to preview in the coming weeks and months as well. But at this point, I would like to uh, thank both uh, Garvin and Julian like for joining me in this episode of, of uh, the Defense Dialogue podcast series. And I would also like to thank 
all of you like who tuned in to to listen uh, to our discu- little discussion uh, from wherever you are listening. Um, hopefully you will have a wonderful day and please do join us again in the coming weeks and months for, for, for additional episodes. Thanks a lot and have a good day. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was today's episode of Defence Dialogue. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.